Chapter 12 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 Browning and the Browns. You from Carmen College? Browning turned suddenly at the sound of the questioning voice and came face to face with a middle aged, clean shaven man who had kindly eyes and a friendly smile. His dress and general appearance suggested that he might be a small farmer belonging to the neighborhood. He had that curious air of deference about him which men who have a high respect for education instinctively assume whenever they come in contact with what they conceive to be educated people. It was inexpressibly soothing to the young man's ruffled feelings, but he replied in a grim and significant tone, "'Yes, sir, I'm from Carmen College, and no mistake.' "'Then,' said the other cheerfully, "'I reckon you are the man I'm looking for, though I didn't much expect you before the five-thirteen. I had to drive in this morning, and I told Mother I'd just wait for the train if you happened to take a notion to come in the morning. My rig is just the other side of the depot. Dolly is more used to the plow than she is to the cars, though she ain't a mite afraid of em either, but she can't ever tell what notion dumb critters may take. This is yours, I suppose." Saying which, he caught up the grip from the spot where Dennis had dropped it, and moved forward, still talking. "'You're to stay at our house, you know. Your room is all ready for you.' Browning was laughing now. This sudden and entirely unexpected addition to his bewilderments was quite too much for his fun-loving nature to resist. He followed his grip as he laughed, because there seemed nothing else for him to do, and said with great heartiness that he was very glad to get such a piece of news as that. The farmer looked curious but pleased. "'Yes,' he said. "'Mother and Libby got the room ready first thing this morning. Libby put the finishing touches on it, and the posies she never forgets them. She said she didn't know as you would care for them. Mr. Sutton never seemed to notice them, but you might be different and she'd risk it anyhow.' "'Mr. Sutton!' ejaculated Browning, as following the motion of the other's hand he vaulted into the spring wagon and seated himself. Since accommodations were waiting for him, he might as well avail himself of them, temporarily at least, while he studied into the mystery. "'Yes,' said the farmer, climbing in slowly and giving Dolly a hint to start. "'Mr. Sutton always stops with us. He has been coming every Sunday for quite a spell now, but he couldn't come this week, and he agreed to send down a friend of his to take his place. He said he could likely find one who would want to go up to Mount Hermon this evening to the meetings, and I said then that maybe it would be somebody who would like to come in the morning and attend the afternoon meeting, too. But he wasn't over and above sure that he could get anybody, and so it was all kind of uncertain. I guess there aren't many of the Carmen College folks that care to preach, are there? Mr. Sutton said if he couldn't get anybody that I'd better drive up to the camp and see if I couldn't coax one of the assembly ministers to come out. But the minute I see you, I says to myself, there's my man, and I'm mighty glad of it. I didn't relish going after the assembly, folks. That's what they call their meeting, the assembly. They don't like to leave their own meetings, and I don't blame them a mite, for they are very interesting, and it's the minister's vacation, you may say, so I'm more than usually glad to see you." During this elaborate statement, Browning's face was a study. Astonishment, bewilderment, dismay, and doubt as to how to begin an explanation, struggled with his rising sense of the ludicrous. "'Look here,' he interrupted at last, with a desperate feeling that something must be said at once. "'You're making a big mistake. I'm no preacher.' His companion seemed in no wise disturbed or surprised. "'Oh, that's all right,' he said in a tone of cheery encouragement. "'We understand that you are just college boys, kind of practicing on us, as you may say, but if we can stand it, you ought to, and we get along with it first-rate.' There was fun as well as tolerance in his voice, and Browning laughed in spite of himself and listened. You see, there's only just a very few of us this time of year. In winter now we pretty near fill our little house when the day is fine as it mostly is. Beats all how many pretty Sundays we have in this part of the world. Ever notice it? It will rain great guns most all the week and clear up the last thing Saturday night and be regular Garden of Eden weather for Sunday. But summers the folks scatter. Some go to the logging camps and some go fishing, and them that are left, if they got two good legs, want to walk over to the assembly. 
It ain't much more than a smart two mile by the shortcut through the woods, but there's some that can't walk it and that ain't got any ways to ride, so there's a few of us that think it's better to keep the meetings up right along and not get out of the habit. Mr. Sutton does first rate. I guess he'll make quite a minister by the time he gets through school, though the young folks don't take to him much, and that's queer, too, for he's young himself. But you look as though you could talk some if you once got a going. Fun had the right of way now, and young Browning threw back his head and laughed as he had thought a few hours before that he should never laugh again. He to be riding to an appointment to fill Sutton's place. Sutton, who was as thin as a rail and near-sighted and nervous and, to put it plainly, a trifle slow and dull. Also, he was one who had nothing whatever to do with Kendall Browning or his friends. The laugh was contagious. The farmer joined in heartily. "'I don't know what the joke is,' he said in genial tone. "'But I suppose there is one somewheres, and laughing is kind of catching, you know?' Then the imp named Mischief, who was always hovering dangerously near to Kendall Browning, seemed to take full possession of him. He suddenly resolved to see this thing through, and find out how he would feel by Monday morning. He made no further effort at explanations of any sort, but plied the farmer with questions, until by the time Dolly turned in at the open gate of a neat farmyard, he knew more about the neighborhood and its possibilities than Sutton had learned in the ten weeks that he had been supplying. The large, low-ceilinged room to which he was presently introduced fitted in exactly with the picture he had made of the house. There was a certain homely, old-fashioned cottage house away back among the eastern hills of his childhood, where with his mother he had spent happy hours, that the surroundings and atmosphere recalled forcibly. The room was spotlessly clean, and careful hands had evidently freshened it very lately with a view to the comfort of the occupant. The old-fashioned two-leaved table was covered with a white cloth, and held, besides the Bible and hymn-book, a little very old-fashioned pink pitcher filled with sweet peas. "'This is Libby's work,' said the youth as he bent over them. "'She will find me more susceptible to flowers than Sutton is.' He laughed a little over it all, yet there was a tender light in his eyes. His mother loved sweet peas. Close at hand was a large wooden rocker, also of the old-fashioned sort that his childhood had known in but one place. It was wide-armed and gaily cushioned, and had an immaculately white towel pinned to its broad shoulders. Visions of Sutton leaning luxuriously back in this chair, selecting his hymns and his chapter, overcame Browning's gravity again, and also confirmed in his volatile mind the determination to see the thing through. It was almost a certainty that Sutton had failed in securing a substitute to conduct the Sunday service. He knew the two or three fellows who sometimes responded to such calls, and he happened to know that several of them at least had engagements in other directions. But he was here, and, owing to a curious combination of circumstances, here he must remain until that business of his father's, whatever it was, had received attention. Why shouldn't he talk a little while tomorrow to the handful of people who would gather in the little church? He surely wouldn't do them any harm, for that matter. It was a pity if a fellow brought up as he had been to go to church twice on Sunday, besides always going to Sunday school, couldn't say a little something about a Bible verse, or about a whole chapter, if he chose, that might be worth hearing. What was the use of having the reputation of being the best speaker in college if it couldn't be turned to so much account? He could read the hymns for them anyhow, and in such fashion that they would wish that they need never hear Sutton draw one out again, and then he could sing them if they wanted him to. As for the praying, he would venture a whole paper of pins that the good old farmer knew how to pray. He could get him to attend to that part. He could tell him that he himself was new at such business, which would be the truth, certainly. The more he thought about it, the more fascinated he became with the entire scheme. "'Jinks!' he said gleefully. "'What would Brother Fallows think if he should find out how the fellow he sent home in disgrace spent his first Sunday? I hope he will find it out, and I'll carry it through in good style, too, just to show them that they have not crushed me.' In this way, the idea that had at first presented itself to him as an idle fancy took firm hold of his heedless, fun-loving nature, 
and by the time he had joined the hospitable household at their dinner-table, and had eaten heartily of the luxuries from garden and orchard with which it was loaded, he was fully resolved to stay with them over Sunday. To be sure, if Sutton should succeed in getting a substitute to appear on the 513 train, it would make an embarrassing interruption to the present smoothness of his career, but the gay youth comforted himself with the belief that he could manage it somehow. "'I'll meet him at the station,' he chuckled, "'and either buy him up or choke him, whichever he prefers. Or perhaps I'll let him stay, if he is open to reason, and just share the honors with him. However we fix it, here I stay until Monday morning. I intend to have some more of that chicken pie and Sally Lund shortcake, whatever happens.' In this mood he went to the station to meet the 513 train. "'Hello,' said Dennison, as he caught a glimpse of his friend, seated complacently in the spring wagon, with Dolly standing comfortably by, looking at the engine with tranquil eyes. "'Seems to me this is a very different-looking chap from the one I left this morning. Struck a fortune, haven't you? Where did you steal your rig?' "'This is Dolly,' said Browning complacently, "'and she is no more afraid of the cars than I am, and I'm in clover. Did the letter come? Say, Dennison, I wonder if you know how awfully obliged I am to you for everything.' "'All right,' said Dennison. "'Here's your letter. I'm going on with the boys.' Just drive Dolly over to Mount Hermon after you have fixed things up here. The boys sent you a royal invitation to join them, and it will be just your style. They're in for fun tonight, I tell you. Shall we expect you over?" "'Perhaps,' said Browning cheerfully, as he broke the seal of his letter. He had to shout his good-bye and thanks after the departing train. There had been no chance for explanations on either side, but there would be time enough for that. He was very much pleased. No substitute had appeared, and he should not have to share the chicken pie, nor enter into embarrassing details. The letter received first attention, and had to do with business so important that his heart swelled with pride over the thought of his father's trust in him. "'I wish Brother Fallows could have a look at this,' he muttered. "'I guess he would discover that my father thinks me good for something, even yet.' But this was a sore subject, and he got his thoughts away from it as quickly as possible. Time enough to think over the shame and pain of his position when he reached home. At present he certainly had enough to attend to. He wrestled for some time with the telegram covering the backs of all the old letters he had in his pocket with formulas, before he succeeded in putting the facts he must convey in briefest language, making them intelligible to his father and meaningless to others. At last he succeeded, and smiled on it gleefully. "'That's the talk, old chap,' he said. "'The local operator may study over that as long as he pleases before he sends it up, and it will continue to be Greek to him, while father will know exactly what it means. I say, Brownie, you are good for something yet, aren't you?' Then, long as the despatch was, after a thoughtful moment, he added this. Wire me here. I'm here for the meetings. If I am not here for the meetings, he chuckled, what am I here for? Mother will like the sound of that. Poor mother. It was horrible to have to close every thought of her with a sigh. It was horrible in a fellow to disappoint his mother. He had never meant to do it. And I don't mean to now, he muttered. I'm in for one more good time tonight with the boys. I wonder what they are up to, and which set they are, anyway. I ought to have asked Dennison. Oh, well, no matter. It's my last night. I'll never come back to this college, no, sir, not if they get down on their knees to me, but I won't break mother's heart either, though that is what they expect me to do. I'll show them. After tonight I shall reform." He did not realize how often he had made some such pledge with himself, and that it was always after tonight. The evident respect with which the telegraph operator greeted him was both amusing and comforting. "'You're the new preacher, I take it,' he said, as he handed back the change. Mr. Brown told me he was expecting a new one for tomorrow. "'Mr. Brown?' repeated Browning inquiringly. "'Yes, Farmer Brown. You are stopping with him, aren't you? The preachers always do, and I see you are driving his dolly.' "'Oh, yes, certainly. I'm at Dolly's house all right, but I hadn't thought to ask her owner's name.' "'He's Jonas Brown, 
the best man by all odds in these parts. Everybody, saint and sinner both, believe in Farmer Brown. I'm not surprised, said young Browning cordially. I believe in him myself. End of chapter 12